The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, everyone, so let us um, carry on with the Anapanasati Sutta. And uh, we're just looking at the uh, uh, body contemplation, the first four steps of the sutta just before the meal. Uh, and we were kind of uh, suggesting how to move from that to the uh, contemplation of feelings. Really remember that each of the four steps in the Anapanasati Sutta is equivalent to one of the four uh, Satipatthanas. So the second Satipatthana is contemplation of feelings. Uh, so the second f uh, the factors 5 to 8 in the Anapanasati Sutta is really all about uh, contemplating feelings. Uh, so we move from the calming down of the breath, we now move on to the feeling area. So let's see how this is expressed in the Anapanasati Sutta. So it goes like this. You won't find it in the papers there because uh, this is all um, extra to that. Uh, but uh, this is what it sounds like in the Anapanasati Sutta. They practice like this. Uh, I will breathe in experiencing rapture. Uh, they practice like this. Uh, I will breathe out uh, experiencing rapture. Uh, they practice like this. I'll breathe in experiencing bliss. Uh, they practice like this. I will breathe out experiencing bliss. They practice like this. I'll breathe in experiencing mental processes. Uh, I practice like this, I'll breathe out experiencing mental processes. They practice like this, I'll breathe in stilling mental, the mental processes. I'll practice like this, I'll breathe out stilling the mental processes. So uh, this is all about happiness and joy uh, all the way throughout, starting with rapture, this Pali word piti, uh, which uh, many of you will be very familiar with. Uh, and uh, this is a kind of rapture that is often felt in a physical sense. Felt like, uh, you know, it can start very gently uh, and often is called pamoja in the more gentle stages, like gladness or whatever, or joy. Uh, and then it kind of um, increases and it's felt kind of mentally and physically. It's kind of throughout the whole uh, person, really. Uh, and uh, it can be experienced in many different ways, uh, often like kind of waves of joy and that sort of thing. Uh, um, but it varies quite a bit from different people how it is experienced. Uh, but it, has, it tends to have a physical component. That's what distinguishes piti from the following factor, which is bliss here, sukha. And sukha always comes after uh, the piti. It is like a development of the piti. Uh, so when the piti calms down uh, and the physical element sort of uh, disappears or... Uh, uh, goes into the background, uh, that is when the bliss uh, becomes, well, that is when it becomes called bliss. Uh, so it's a calmer form of piti, it's a more refined and more profound form of happiness uh, that you find with sukha. And so there is a development here. Uh, and um, one of the kind of the important developments that you will see, I mentioned this the other day, uh, uh, throughout meditation practice, uh, there's like two things you should always see. Uh, becoming more refined, becoming more powerful, more interesting. Uh, one is the calm, uh, the tranquility uh, aspect, uh, and the other one is the happiness aspect. Uh, both of these develop continuously throughout the meditation until they kind of reach real maximums when you enter the jhana states. Uh, and so each of these 16 steps, or at least the first 12, they are a development of these two factors all the way through. Uh, 
So it's kind of uh, extraordinary when you think of it like that. Uh, so you experience the rapture, which then becomes more subtle. Uh, and then the third step is experiencing these uh, mental processes. Uh, and this is a uh, mental process here is, uh, what is it again? Chitta Sankara. And Chitta Sankara is often defined in the suttas as uh, feelings and perceptions. So it's really that experience you're having, the mental experience you're having at that particular point. Uh, yeah, and that so that basically is those feelings that you're having here. Um, so chitta sankara does not so much here refer to the will because the will is already calming down, but to the experience uh, in that meditation. Uh, and then the last one is when you calm down uh, these mental processes. Yeah, again the idea of calming down one more time, uh, becoming still calmer than before. Uh, one thing more powerful, one thing more interesting than the previous one, uh, building on top of each other. Uh. So this is where meditation starts to become really interesting, right? Here you're entering territory that um, you may never have experienced before in your life until you enter the meditation process. Uh, and uh, it becomes very fascinating. You're entering the realm of uh, spiritual feelings, Niramisa Sukha, the beginning of the Niramisa Sukha. Niramisa literally means uh, it means um, non-carnal. Uh, yeah, Amisa is often like flesh or food. Uh, so this is like the non-food or non-flesh. Uh, so non-carnal is like one explanation of this. Uh, and so it's like spiritual feelings. Uh, and these spiritual feelings, they kind of they reach their maximum in the jhanas again. Uh, so now we're entering a different realm. We're leaving behind, gradually, slowly, the realm of the five senses, the ordinary realm of the world is gradually disappearing into the background. And something new is opening up, uh, something far more interesting and satisfactory. Uh, and this is why we developed that those perceptions about the five sense realm not really being satisfactory. It's be precisely because it leads to this instead. Uh, so it's all what is interesting about this uh, and uh, one thing is that um, kind of makes this fascinating when you compare it to the Vedana Nupassana of the Satipatthana Sutta I mentioned before in brief what you find in the Satipatthana Sutta it says there that you know the various kinds of feelings you know the um, unhappy or the painful feelings uh, yeah you know the happy feelings uh, the neutral feelings uh, and then you know the from from the point of view of worldly and from the point of view of spiritual uh, those are the main feelings found there uh. now you will notice that in the satipatthana sutta it talks about painful feelings uh, right uh, here there are no painful feelings uh. that's kind of interesting so why is that uh, does that mean that painful feelings are optional? <laughs> it would be nice, wouldn't it, if they're optional, if you don't have to really contemplate them. Or maybe there's a different way of contemplating them. There seems to be discrepancy there. And of course, if this is the way of contemplating, doing the Veda and Vipassana, then this must be correct, right? So it, means that, it basically means that you don't have to experience painful feelings in your meditation. That's really what it means. So you can bypass all that painful contemplation uh, in uh, that is, you know, in, in terms of experiencing painful feelings. Uh, it is not actually required on the path. Uh, this is enough. All you have to do is experience happiness. Uh, and remember, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the um, 
uh, argument in favor of experiencing painful feelings in many of the Vipassana traditions uh, is that it is part of the Satipatthana Sutta. It says there you have to experience painful feelings, so you better get down to it and start experiencing those feelings. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of the argument, right? That's why you sit down and you kind of, okay, now get some insight into these feelings. And I, I've heard many people watching painful feelings. I haven't really seen many people have gotten all that wise from it. So I, I'm sort of starting to um, wonder how, how important it actually is. And of course the point is, and this is really I think the important point, insight is not, does not always come from observing things directly here. And this is one of the problems, just as in the sense of the 31 parts of the body, you don't actually have to see those parts in the body within you, so you can actually need some psychic powers to see them. In the same way, you don't actually have to observe those painful feelings to understand them. One of the most powerful ways of understanding things is precisely what we have been saying all along. When it stops, when you come out of it, again, the tadpole, tadpole and the water, when you emerge from those painful feelings, when they're completely gone, that's when you understand them fully, their full scope, how problematic they really are. You understand them from the point of view of impermanence, because now they're gone. Non-self, because sometimes we can't even access them. And that is where the real insight happens. So you don't actually have to watch these things to gain insight. In fact, it's the other way around. Much better to gain insight into these things when they are not present. That is when the real insight happens. We have the most venerable Mudita arriving, so welcome, uh, venerable. Uh, venerable. <laughs> so we have just lost venerable Sadara, so we have a replacement coming in here. Uh, so uh, excellent. Uh, <laughs> so that's good. Uh. It's always nice to have many monastics, isn't that right? Uh? It's like you get to kind of fill up the stage with monastics. It's always really cool. Uh. So um, we still have room for a couple of more down there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Another one, yeah. One over there. How many over there? Two more over there. Wow, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Are you going to join the Sangha? <laughs> there, there is room. <laughs> Thinking about it, okay. <laughs> Coming up volunteering, that's very brave. Yeah. <laughs> That is, uh, uh, I think, a very interesting and important point because it means that um, uh, it actually changes the way we practice these things and we can actually follow the instructions in the Anapanasati Sutta without having to go into these uh, areas of pain, etc., uh, etc. Et so um, that is the uh, Vedana, Nupasana, in terms of four factors of uh, the Anapanasati Sutta. Uh, um, and then uh, the last one, you calm down, and when you know, as you calm down, uh, then of course there comes a point when you can enter the next stage. Uh, and as I mentioned before, before I go on to that one, uh, the idea of moving from the body uh, onto feeling sometimes it takes a little bit of extra nudging of the mind. I did mention this before, uh, just to bring up that joy. But sometimes it happens automatically. You just watch the breath, uh, and because you are in a good space, thing the process just happens all by itself. That, in fact, that is probably the most uh, common thing. Uh, uh, but sometimes a bit of nudging is required. Uh. So let's go on to. Uh, the fact stages number 9 to 12 uh, of the uh, Anapanasati. Uh, 
They practice like this. Uh, I'll breathe in, experiencing the mind. They practice like this. I'll breathe out, experiencing the mind. They practice like this. I'll breathe in, gladdening the mind. They practice like this. I'll breathe out, gladdening the mind. They practice like this. I'll breathe in, stilling the mind. They practice like this. I'll breathe out, stilling the mind. They practice like this. I'll breathe in, freeing the mind. They practice like this. I'll breathe out, freeing the mind. So this is stages number 11 to 12 of the Anapanasati Sutta. And um, if you can't remember them all as I go through them, don't worry too much. I'll explain what they are about. Um, so uh, here we are moving from feelings to mind, yeah, experience the mind. So that's why this is the third, 9 to 12 is equivalent to Chitta Nupassana in the Satipatthana Sutta. Huh? So we're now going into contemplating mental things, the mind specifically. And so it starts off by saying, I breathe in experiencing the mind. What does that mean, experiencing the mind? And um, because already we have been experiencing the mind, right? We have been doing feelings and all of these kind of things. So what is the particular point of this? And uh, this is where I kind of lean on many years of being an Ajahn Brahm disciple. And uh, the obvious answer is that the mind is that which is not physical. Uh, so when you remove the physical, material aspects of the world, uh, what is left uh, is the mind. Uh, and the material is the body and the five external senses uh, that belongs to the material world. Uh, so when those start to fade into the background, uh, what comes into the foreground uh, is the mind. Uh, so this is what is happening here. The body is starting to fade away. The five senses are still there, but they're going into the background. Uh, some of the senses fade first, like tasting and smelling obviously fade very quickly because they're not very prominent anyway. Uh, the sense of sight is now already disappearing or maybe already been turned off at this point. Uh, the body is really going into the background. Uh, you can still maybe hear some sounds, but they're a little bit as if they are far away. It's like your mind is withdrawing from that world. And when this happens, this is where the so-called nimitta appears. Yeah? And nimitta is like an aspect of the mind. It's a mental thing. It's a reflection of the mind in many ways, or whatever you want to call it. And so that is the mind appearing. So when you see like a light in the mind, the sun and the moon, something bright, something powerful and beautiful, that is really here the most obvious interpretation of what mind means in this case. Yeah, going from the beautiful experience of feelings uh, and then coming to this uh, powerful nimittas, this obasa and rupa, as it was called in the Upakilesa Sutta. And this is what is kind of emerging here. This is what experiencing the mind uh, means. Uh, so very interesting. So how do we go from feelings uh, to mind? Because this is another stage we are kind of you're going from one thing and you're moving on to something that is slightly different. Just like going from the body to feeling can be a bit tricky. Going from feelings to mind can also be a bit tricky because it's a shift there. There's a shift where suddenly something else, something new is appearing here. And one of the kind of common things that happens when you go to these samadhi nimittas is that often they can be a bit unstable. Yeah, sometimes you can see flashes of light uh, or you see something, a light which is not very strong uh, and these kind of things that it comes for a while, it disappears very quickly again. Uh, 
And so often we have to build up enough momentum in our meditation for these things to be stable. So sometimes just stay with those feelings, stay with the breath until the nimitta becomes so strong that it's kind of it's easy to turn your mind to it, and it's stable. It doesn't waver. It doesn't flicker. It's easy to focus on. So this is one of those important things. Yeah, build up enough strength of the meditation so that next stage happens more or less automatically or more or less by itself. So this is kind of what this is about. There's another thing you can do at this stage. Remember what we're doing here. We're moving to the mind. What that means, you're leaving the world of the five senses behind. And so to enable the transition, it can be useful to remind yourself of the problems of the world of the five senses. Yeah? A quick recollection of just wanting to give up that world, uh, reminding yourself of all the dukkha in that world, uh, reminding yourself of why that world actually is really unsatisfactory and really unpleasant. Uh, the sabbaloki anabhidatta sanya, something like that. Uh, and it's kind of getting, because it is so important, uh, impermanent, uh, just a reminder that you're going to die soon anyway, everything has to go, so who cares? Uh, so let go of that world, right? Uh, and soon, I mean, you know, if, even if you're going to die in 50 years, that's soon, right? It's just around the corner, uh, happens just so fast. Uh, <laughs> that's the reality of it. Yeah, it's just, uh, it's, now is the time to be ready to die. And so just a little recollection like that, uh, giving up that body, uh, yeah, giving up the five senses, uh, remembering the instability of that world, the uncertainty of it all, uh, can be enough to allow the mind to move on to the next stage, uh, uh, which is the, the uh, experiencing of the mind. Uh. But these are just some ideas how to kind of move from one stage to the next one. Ideally, it happens seamlessly. You just kind of move from one to the other one. Uh, don't really have to worry too much about it. Uh. And of course, uh, when you do this, it, it, it's... Uh, this is where also we talked about before the Upakalesa Sutta about excitement and these kind of things. Uh, this is where things can very easily get very exciting. Uh, yeah, and then you blow it all by getting too excited. It uh, can easily happen. Uh, so you, you, there's a lot of learning in this whole process as well. You learn how to deal with these very powerful mind states. Uh, things you probably have never seen before. Uh, things that are just kind of really extraordinary. Uh, like you're gradually moving into a different reality, a different realm. Uh, you're moving out of your comfort zone into another zone, uh, which soon enough becomes far more comfortable than the previous zone. Uh, soon it comes to a point when moving back into the five sense world, that is your discomfort zone. Uh, and your comfort zone is the nimitta, your comfort zone is the jhanas, because you know it is far, far preferable to anything you had before. Uh, but in the beginning, this is moving out of your comfort zone, because uh, it is... Uh, unknown. Uh, you haven't really fully appreciated the, uh, the, uh, the beauty and the power of these qualities yet. Uh, so you experience the mind. Then uh, you practice like this. You gladden the mind. How do you gladden the mind? By not doing anything. Uh, yeah? This is kind of the point. This is the, one of the uh, things that is a uh, recurrent theme throughout this whole sutta on mindfulness of breathing. You don't actually do anything. You go from one stage to the next one precisely because you don't do anything. You do less and less. You allow the process to occur. You allow the process to happen by itself. That is the whole point of this. So when, you go, when we talk about practicing, we basically just means allowing the process to happen. And with each stage on this path, the, uh, your 
involvement uh, in what's happening becomes less and less and less. Uh, and it is that very fact that you become less involved, uh, which means that this whole thing progresses uh, more and more still, more and more peaceful, less and less involvement, uh, standing back, uh, just enjoying. It's like enjoying the ride. Yeah, this is what Ajahn Brahm talks about when he talks about being the passenger on the train. Uh, you're not in the driver's seat. You're just enjoying the landscape. You're looking out the window, uh, seeing the mountains, seeing the fjords. Uh, if you're from Norway, you see the fjords. Not if you're from Australia so much. If you maybe go to New Zealand, uh, seeing the desert, yeah, the beautiful deserts of Western Australia or, or Australia in general. Uh, uh, seeing the kind of the uh, mountains here in Victoria, uh, um, and you see the landscape. The landscape is so beautiful, and as you go on, it becomes more and more beautiful. Uh, you realize after a while you're no longer on the planet Earth. Uh, you have entered an alternative space. Uh, this is the space of the mind. Uh, and uh, this is how you kind of are just a passenger enjoying this. Uh, initially, you may be having one hand on the steering wheel, uh, but then you realize, no, the chauffeur doesn't want you to steer <laughs> this thing. So you kind of remove your hand from the steering mechanism uh, and you allow the train to go by itself. And you just enjoy the journey. You know that the less you try to steer, uh, the more beautiful the landscape becomes. And so the gladdening happens by itself. Your job is just to watch this nimitta, this bright, beautiful light in the mind. And as you watch it, without wavering, watching the most beautiful part of it, watching the center, not the edges, because the edges is where the diversity is found. And as you do that, it just grows. It becomes more and more happy. The two things in meditation, increase in happiness, increase in stillness uh, and that is why the next one is stilling the mind uh, yeah the third one of these uh, samadhaang chittang uh, again you just keep watching uh, in this way less and less involvement uh, and as you do that it becomes more peaceful stilling uh, unmoving gladdening two qualities growing and growing and growing in uh, conjunction with each other uh. then we come to the twelfth of these one uh, which says, I will breathe in, freeing the mind. They practice like this, I will breathe out, freeing the mind. This is the last thing we do. Uh, freeing the mind, again, it just means that you're allowing the mind to be freed. You don't actually free it. And uh, beyond that, beyond the last freeing, are the jhanas. The, the freeing of the mind is like the very last act of letting go that you do. And the very last act of letting go allows you to enter the jhana states. So the jhanas are implied, but not really spoken about, because the freeing is actually the, uh, uh, is just the idea of letting go towards the very end. So this is the very last thing here. Yeah? Then that is kind of where the path ends in a sense. And you will notice that now you have come all the way to the end of the Noble Eightfold Path, of the jhana states. What does it mean to free the mind? What is it freed from? It is freed from the five senses. It is freed from the body. It is freed from the five hindrances. Yeah, the akusala dhamma, as it says, viviceva akusalehi dhammehi, as it says at the beginning of the first jhana formula. It is freed from the will. There's no more willing here. Yeah, the, or the, or the active willing is gone. There's only a slight movement of the mind. It's like a passive kind of willing left in the mind. And of course, when the mind is freed, it is like coming out of prison. Yeah, prison is the opposite of freedom. Do you want to be in prison or do you want to be free? If you ask people, they say, oh, actually, you know, very few people want to be in prison, except maybe some monks who like to have some solitude. 
Ajahn Brahm says solitary confinement. Thank you, I'll take that any time. But uh, I, think, I think you may be overestimating the solitary confinement of prisons, actually. But um, anyway, freedom, right? It's a beautiful word. Uh, and it's a word that we see in the Buddhist suttas all the time. The whole, uh, what does it say in that famous sutta, the Nguttra 8? It's the Vimutti Rasa. The taste, the Dhamma has only one taste, uh, the taste of freedom. Uh, yeah, Isn't that, that's a kind of very beautiful statement. Uh, only one taste. In other words, everything we do on this path, uh, every time you do an act of kindness, uh, you are freeing yourself. Uh, every time you do an act of kindness, you're going against the negative tendencies of the mind, uh, and you're liberating yourself stage by stage. Uh, and here is where you find the real freedom, because here you are fully freed from the five sense realm. You're entering a new reality, a new reality called the Rupa Avachara or Rupa Loka, depending on where you read to get your information from. And so this is a new reality, and that's why it is extraordinary and different and unusual and and just you know completely. It's a new reality compared to what you had before. But of course, a very blissful uh, and extremely attractive reality. Uh. And uh, what is uh, interesting about this new reality, uh, and this is what I mentioned before, is that it is not just really about samadhi and samatha and bliss and all of these good things. I mean, of course, these things are a very important part of this. Uh, but it is also, at the same time, it is also jnana dasana. It is also knowledge and vision at the same time. Uh. As I said before, these states are called distinctions in knowledge and vision worthy of the noble ones. So the jhanas themselves are knowledge and vision. And that's kind of you know, really interesting. Because uh, you know, not, that's not usually mentioned any, anywhere, but even though this is a standard, a standard appellation of these things, these states. And so you come out of these things, you have known and seen something very unusual, something very profound. And it will affect you in a profound way afterwards. Uh, you have seen an entire aspect of the world disappear. The five sense world is gone for the first time. Uh, completely gone. And that, of course, must bring insight when you come out afterwards. Because uh, you understand the dukkha of the five sense world. Uh, you just abandon the swamp that we have talked about so, so much before, right? The swamp is gone. Uh, and good riddance. <laughs> Wow, the swamp is gone. The swamp is so sticky. And now finally you're completely out of it. The snare, as it is, called, as it is also called, uh, it's all left behind. Uh, and uh, so you understand, you have actually emerged from something that is very hard to emerge from. Uh, not only have you emerged from it, but you have understood fully the dukkha because you've entered a far more profound state. Uh, you have understand its impermanence because it was completely ceased uh, without any remainder. Uh, yeah, so it is completely, utterly impermanent. You don't need that sensory world at all. You can fully exist without it. And in the last part, it must be non-self, because it is left behind. You can't access that sensory world in the five jhanas, and so it must be non-self. You're starting to see the world in a new way. Profound insights emerge whether you want to or not. You cannot avoid the insights, because they come with the territory here. These are aspects of jnana dasana. It's impossible not to have an insight after you come out of jhana. Um, uh, how does it go again? Uh, the, the famous verse in the Dhammapada, the one, without, uh, the, the one uh, without jhana has no wisdom, the one without wisdom has no jhana, but the one who has both jhana and wisdom is in the vicinity of Nibbana. I can't remember the Pali now, but anyway, whatever, it doesn't matter. So, um, 
the uh, yeah so jhana and wisdom and jhana wisdom are actually almost synonymous with each other they come together it's the same kind of territory that's why the jhanas are the final part of the buddhist path so this is the um, a kind of the calming down aspect of the uh, anapanasati sutta and now we come to the last four stages of the sutta stages number 13 to 16 and this is called the insight part. And this is the kind of thing I'm just talking about now. You come out of the jhana and insights just happen. So let's have a look at these last four uh, elements of Anapanasati. They practice like this. I breathe in observing impermanence. They practice like this. I will breathe out, observing impermanence. Uh, they practice like this. Uh, I will breathe in, observing fading away. Uh, they practice like this. I'll breathe out, observing fading away. Uh, they practice like this. I'll breathe in, observing cessation. Uh, they practice like this. I'll breathe out, observing cessation. Uh, they practice like this. I'll breathe in, observing letting go. Uh, they practice like this. I'll breathe out, observing letting go. Uh, so now we have finally come to the very end. We're coming back into the sutta again, just at the very last uh, thing there. So, uh, yeah. So, um, uh, these are all about uh, various aspects of insight. Uh, yeah. So the, and they go deeper and deeper aspects of insights as you move from one to the next one of these things. Uh, impermanence, uh, anicca, anicca nupasi, or just refers to the fact that things change. Yeah, that's what anicca means. Things are always changing, always moving. Yeah? And that's kind of obvious from the beginning. You see things changing, the breath coming in and out, the breath stopping, the in-breath becoming the out-breath, uh, feelings coming and going. Yeah? So that's just observing the very fact of impermanence, uh, nothing really being solid, uh, things always moving. Yeah? However, that is not enough. Uh, and the reason why it is not enough uh, is because... Uh, um, sometimes things may change, but they may change on the surface, whereas what is below, what might be called the substrate, yeah, the, the, the thing which um, is kind of the solidity below the surface, if you like, that may still be there all the time. Like the waves on the ocean, the waves on the ocean are always changing and always moving, always impermanent, but the ocean is always there. The ocean is like the, the substrate, to use a fancy word. It is a thing which, upon which the impermanence kind of relies or through which the, imperman through which the impermanence expresses itself uh, through the ocean. And so it doesn't really give any profound sense of impermanence. That's why we need to go to the next one. So first of all, you contemplate just change. And you contemplate fading away. Now, fading away means that the change has a certain direction. If something fades away, it means that it's gradually decreasing. It's not coming and going up and down. It's gradually going down. Yeah? This is the idea of fading away. So the next thing we see is things gradually disappearing, gradually moving in one direction. And of course, that fading away has only one endpoint. The endpoint is cessation. That's why cessation is the third one of these, right? It ends with niroda. Things completely come to an end. And when you contemplate things coming to an end 
again and again and again through the jhanas, through the various stages of samatha practice, uh, there comes a point when you kind of get fed up with all of that stuff. Yeah, all of this stuff coming to an end, uh, understanding its suffering, understanding its non-self nature, understanding all of that, uh, and eventually. Uh, because of repeatedly seeing this, uh, there comes a point when you let it go completely. Yeah? You lose interest in these things. Uh, yeah? That is letting go. Patinisagga in Pali. Yeah? And you let it go. And letting go here means uh, that craving comes to an end. Uh, never again will you be able to crave things that are so unreliable, so uncertain, so full of dukkha, non-self. Why on earth would anyone want to crave this stuff? Uh, I have been mad for so many eons, uh, craving stuff that is completely useless. Uh, now I see what is going on. Uh, that is kind of the nature of insight. Uh, and when you see that deeply, uh, you no longer want to hold on to the coal. Who wants to hold on to coal? No, let go of the call. Finally letting go of the call. Uh, never again will you crave for that call. Why? Because it's painful. Uh. So this is the process of insight. Uh. So what is the object? Uh, what are the things that we are observing in this way? What are the things that are fading away and ceasing? Uh? What are the things that we are letting go of ultimately? Uh? And of course the answer is we have just been through a process. Uh. This process of meditation through 12 steps, that is the process that we are contemplating in that way. We've already seen how that process leads to deeper and deeper stillness. That means things are fading away. Right? That's what stillness means. Things are gradually fading away. Eventually you come to some very deep um, junctures in this process. And that is where things sometimes cease, especially when you enter the jhanas. That's where real cessation happens. So by Going through this process, uh, you are actually seeing this uh, impermanence happening in this way through that process of samatha that we have been seeing here. So our job then is to look back on that process, uh, look back on what has been happening, yeah, reinforcing. Yes, you already know it from the process itself. You can just, as you go through the process of calming, you can see things fading away and ceasing, but also it's good to reflect back. Then is when you strengthen that insight, and that is when new insights can arise, even more profound insights can arise as a consequence. So you look back on that process. What exactly is that process that we have been going through? What are those experiences? And they are the five khandas. What you are seeing is the five khandas. Five khandas, the five aspects of personality, the five aggregates, whatever you want to call them. This is what you are seeing. We have been looking at feelings, the mind, and the mind consists of perceptions, and the will and consciousness. We're looking at the body, yeah, the rupa. So this process that we have been through is the five khandas. So what you are contemplating now is actually the five khandas. And you're seeing them in terms of the three characteristics, impermanence, suffering, and non-self. So we see, so let, let's, take, let's take some examples of what we're seeing here, right? First of all, the body, Rupa Kanda, the first of the five Kandas, mostly refers to the, not just the body, but mostly refers to the body. So what are you seeing with the body? You're seeing it gradually disappearing. Yeah, it's kind of fading away and becoming less and less prominent uh, until eventually when you come into the Nimitta state, it's basically completely gone. And then when you enter the Jhanas, it is completely gone. You can't even access it anymore after that. So you see its impermanence. And you see it's fading away. And as you see that, 
you see that uh, it is also, you understand suffering, because as you let go of the body, the bliss starts to arise. The less there is of the body, the greater is the bliss. Uh, the body is a nuisance. It becomes bleeding obvious as you go through this thing here. Yeah. And then eventually go into jhana, you can't even access the body. Now, well, the body is out of reach, so it must be non-self, because the whole idea of a self is that which can access something. You can deal with it, you can control it in a certain way. If it is outside of your existence, it means it must be non-self. This is kind of part of the inside process. So it's very obvious with the body. What about feelings, the second of the five khandhas? Well, as you go through this process, the negative feelings become less and less. The pain goes when you come to the Vedana, Nupassana, the contemplation of it. There's no more pain there. The pain is completely gone. Or maybe occasionally it arises, but it's kind of really, really fading away. And then the happiness itself becomes more and more refined. Certain aspects of happiness are starting to disappear, right? So there's impermanence of feeling. There's a certain direction to the feelings. Certain feelings gradually disappearing until they completely disappear. And then you enter a jhana state and all there is left is this very sublime bliss at that point. Same thing with, uh, uh, I should have mentioned the five senses because the five senses are part of the rupakanda. Just as with the body, the five senses gradually disappear. They gradually fade away until they cease completely in the jhanas. So you understand the five senses are a nuisance. Because why? Because when you go into a jhana, you are far more happy. You understand that all of these inputs coming through the senses is actually tiring and taxing on your mind and is always irritating you to some extent. And so you let it go. So one thing after the other, right? Uh, uh, hindrance. You can do a similar kind of thing with the defilements of the mind. You're seeing the defilements disappearing here, uh, gradually ceasing here. Uh. You can do the same thing with perception. Perception is just whatever your mind is aware of, right? And so a lot of perceptions disappear. The perceptions of the body, perceptions of the five senses, perceptions of defilements, certain feelings. Uh, so perceptions are always evolving, always changing, ceasing here. Uh. The next one that is very important is Sankara. Sankara is the fourth of the five khandhas. This is a very important one, and you can really see how the Sankaras are changing as you go through this process. Gradually, everything is becoming more still, stage by stage. It means the will is gradually fading away. This very important part of our personality, this part that is so important to us, that we identify in a very profound way. You're allowing this to, to fade away. This is, this is extraordinarily powerful, precisely because we identify so much with it. Uh, when you allow that to fade away, this kind of transcends your ordinary understanding of the world. I am not the will. Wow, that's really extraordinary. When you enter a jhana, you know that full well that you cannot be the will. Why? Because the will is gone. You are still there. You cannot access the will anymore. You can't make choices anymore. You can't decide what to do. You're in a frozen state, uh, and very happily so. So you understand the will is non-self. The will is dukkha, for goodness sake. That's kind of ex extraordinary here, and it's completely gone. It has ceased. So one thing after the other, one kanda after the other, you see how the kandas, uh, this is how the best way, I reckon, to contemplate the five kandas, uh, not in some kind of theoretical way, but through direct experience in this way. Uh, 
Then you have the vinyana, the last of the five khandas, consciousness, yeah? gradually fading away the five senses. Until the five senses you go into the jhana experience, the only consciousness that is left is the mind consciousness. All the other five are completely gone. They have ceased. They must be impermanent. Then as you go through the various jhana stages, aspects of mind consciousness is kind of thrown out. So that too is impermanent and changing. And from that it doesn't take all that much insight to make the last leap. And the last leap is to see everything as impermanent. And that is where you finally make the final breakthrough and you become a stream enterer. You see the five khandas fully as impermanent and problematic. So this is the insight aspect coming at the end of these 12 steps. Now, does that mean that you have to do all 12 steps before you can have an insight? Not really. However far you go, it's always advisable at the end of your meditation to look back and see what happened. Yeah, was it how how much disappeared? How much how much dukkha has gone? Yeah, how how nice it is to let go of some of these aspects of the ego and the ego fading away. What a relief! This ego is another nuisance on this in this world. And so, whatever you have done, whatever you have let go of. You gain a little bit of insight just by, by contemplating that. But the big insights uh, come the deeper you go in these 12 steps. Uh. And uh, the anchor throughout this process is the breath. Uh. Even though the breath kind of fades away into the background, it's no longer important. It's like the anchor in the background. Uh. Other things come into the foreground. Uh. So for example, when we do the mind contemplation, it is the nimitta which is the foreground. That is the most important thing. Uh. But the breath is still there as a kind of background anchor that you always come back to if necessary. Uh. And even here when you do the contemplations, yeah, you kind of still, the, the breath kind of can be still be used as an anchor even in these cases. Uh. Even though I'm not entirely sure if it is necessary, but uh, it may be a useful thing to do. Uh. So it is, I don't know if this sounds complex to you when I explain it in this way, but actually it's not very complex at all. It's very, very simple. Each stage of the mindfulness of breathing, things are getting more and more simple. You're throwing out things. What is left, is not only is it simple, but it's blissful, it's happy, it's joyous, it's wonderful to be there. And, uh, and it's actually very, very straightforward. And, this, and these insights that I'm talking about now, maybe it sounds complicated the way I explain it, just because language is very sometimes kind of uh, complicated. Uh, but of course, the reality of what you do is very simple. Uh, you just know that these things have ceased. It's kind of bleeding obvious to you. Of course, it has ceased. Yeah? And you see that. Uh, and then you reflect on it a little bit just to make sure it has gone in deep into your mind. Uh, that is what that is about. Uh, and then... Uh, you uh, are on the highway to awakening here. Yeah. <laughs> it's the best highway in the world. Forget about all these M1s and 2s or whatever. Get, get on the real highway. That's the <laughs> this is it. Yeah. So uh, there you are. So that is the Anapanasati Sutta in brief. Yeah, this is kind of the short version. Uh, the long version, maybe we'll do that next year. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, uh, gives you some idea of what is going on. And then uh, the Buddha says, he says, that is how stillness due to mindfulness and breathing, when developed and cultivated, is very fruitful and beneficial. 
Yeah, now you know why it is very fruitful and beneficial, because it leads all the way to awakening itself. Uh, that's how powerful and uh, beneficial it is. So, uh, now we have done all the, the that triple dot you see in the middle there. That's, that is after, after I'm breathing out heavily, and then there's three little dots, and they practice like this. I'll breathe in, observing, letting go. Those three dots took an hour and a half to explain that. So now you, <laughs> now you know what's going on there. So <laughs> now, uh, let us continue to, and have a look at the remainder of the sutta. <clears throat> Before my awakening, when I was still unawakened, but intent on awakening, I too usually practice this kind of meditation. And while I was usually practicing this kind of meditation, neither my body nor my eyes became fatigued, and my mind was freed from the defilements by not grasping. So here we are again, you see this uh, critical sentence that I have used as a deciding factor for what to include. Uh, I was intent on awakening. Uh, and it says, I too usually, the Pali word is actually bahula, which means often, really, it really means often. Uh, I too often practice this kind of meditation. So this is, I think, the only place in the suttas where the Buddha specifically says that uh, breath meditation was one of his main practices. Uh, and which is, I don't know, I, I, I find that really nice, uh, personally. I, I find it really kind of, um, as I said before, down to earth, uh, you know, this, this kind of meditation which does not too, uh, doesn't kind of, there's no flights or fancy or anything like that. It's kind of really settling and uh, grounding, if you like. Yeah. And uh, then he says, and this is a little bit cryptic perhaps, uh, while I was practicing this kind of meditation, neither my body nor my eyes were fatigued. What on earth is going on? What does it mean by this? Uh, and uh, we can assume here, and, uh, and this is confirmed by the commentaries, uh, if you want to look at the commentaries, but you can assume that the body not being tired uh, is because he had practiced uh, ascetic practices before. Yeah, and they didn't really lead anywhere. Now he has changed his method of meditation. Now he's just watching the breath. So his body is at ease. It doesn't become fatigued. And of course, this again comes back to the idea of the middle way. The body should be at ease. Yeah, the Buddha realized that his body was not at ease, so he took food. Yeah, the famous story of Sujata and offering him the milk rice. Unfortunately, that story is not found in the suttas. It's found in the later... Uh, the later kind of uh, leg legendary material. Uh, but uh, it, something like that happened. Whether there was a lady called Sujata or she was called Lakshmi or whatever, doesn't really matter. Yeah? She probably had a name, right? That's what matters. Uh, and uh, offering milk rice, one of the things these days, sometimes, especially people with, with Sri Lankan background, they often offer milk rice to the monks. Uh, and that's really nice. You know, you get the milk rice and that reminds you of the Buddha yeah? and these kind of things. That's very, very kind of... Uh, Meaningful when you get milk rice, uh, and um, especially at uh, in in Perth when you come to the city centre and you have breakfast in the morning, a couple of the Sri Lankan ladies come every every weekend and they offer breakfast, uh, and they're really delightful people and always a smile on their face and they offer breakfast and they always offer milk rice, uh, and I think yay milk rice, <laughs> Kiribat right Kiribat in the, in Sinhala yeah, so. Uh, 
so this is so this is kind of the idea of the middle way, right? The idea of actually the body needs to be at ease. Eat enough. Don't starve yourself, right? This is why. Uh, depending on what kind of body you have. I notice Adam Nisairono, he has to have breakfast, otherwise he disappears. Uh, because he's so thin by nature. For me, it's the opposite. If I have breakfast, I start blowing out like this, and I can be look like Ajahn Brahm very quickly. Uh, so, that's, so that's why I've decided not to have breakfast, at least uh, most of the time. Uh, so we have to kind of, we, we balance things out to get the, body, you get the kind of body in just comfort, the comfort zone. Uh, and so this is what this is about, yeah? Not to tire the body, yeah? nor to indulge the body. Yeah? So not too much milk rice, just the right amount of milk rice. Yeah? <laughs> and uh, then comes this other thing, which is kind of a little bit strange here. Yeah? And this is that, the idea of not fatiguing the eyes. Yeah? And uh, I, I knew what was meant before I looked at the commentary, because when you are used to the suit, as you know, kind of general outlook of how these things were, uh, work. Uh, and uh, this is a reference to the Kasinna meditations. Uh, because when you do Kasinna meditation, you are looking at uh, often a disc, yeah, a disc of a certain color, or the disc of earth, or the disc of whatever. Uh, and then you use your eyesight, and that can often lead to strain, because you're looking, either you're looking in the mind, or you're looking at something physical externally. Uh. And so this seems to indicate that the Kasinna meditations were done at that time in ancient India. Uh, and that some people were straining and probably even maybe getting problems because of that. Yeah, doing Maybe getting headaches. People talk about samadhi headaches sometimes. Uh, hopefully no one here is getting a samadhi headache. It's like when you focus too hard. Uh, and I can imagine this happens when you do this sort of Kasinna meditation. Kasinna means totality. It's a totality because as you focus on these things, that's all you see. It takes over your entire perception. So it's a totality of experience, a totality of perception that you do. So instead of doing these things, you watch the breath. What does the breath lead to? And this is the nice part. And my mind was freed from defilements by not grasping. This is the result of breath meditation. And of course, being freed from the defilements by not grasping, that is arahantship. Uh, that is becoming fully enlightened. Uh, and this is what this leads to. No headache, no body ache, no eyes fatigued. Instead, it leads to the highest awakening instead, uh, the highest freedom. Uh, that's a pretty good deal, if you ask me. Uh. So, uh, then uh, comes a long series of... Uh, Benefits uh, from practicing uh, uh, mindfulness of breathing. We'll quickly go through those. I don't think they are extremely important. Some of them are very important, but some of them are not quite as important, but nevertheless interesting just to comment on very briefly here. So first of all, the Buddha says, uh, Now a mendicant might wish, uh, May neither my body nor my eyes become fatigued, uh, and may my mind be freed from grasping without defilements. Uh, so let them closely focus uh, on the samadhi due to mindfulness of breathing here. So that's what you should do, mindfulness of breathing. If you want to become enlightened, that is what you should do. That's quite literally what it says there here. Now a mendicant my, may wish, might wish, may I give up memories and thoughts of the lay life. Uh, uh, so let them closely focus on the samadhi due to mindfulness of breathing here. Yeah. Uh, this is often, this is called, I think, ghasita uh, 
Gehasita um, Sara Sankappa or something like that. Uh, let's, let's look because now I happen to have the Pali with me. I've, today I have, uh, my wisdom has gone up a couple of nudges, uh, nudges as it's uh, <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, Gehasita Sara Sankapa, exactly. It's found in other suttas as well, so that's why I could remember that. So, um, so th- this, what does this mean? Well, this means that when you focus on the mindfulness of the breath, uh, the desires uh, about the world is fading away. Gehasita here, uh, co- connected with the household life, basically means connected with the five senses uh, and the pleasures of the five senses. That's really what it refers to. Uh, and that is overcome by watching the breath. Why? Well, because watching the breath overcomes thinking. Yeah, you can't think about these things. Sada Sankapa is the thinking and the memory and the intention in regard to those things. So you're overcoming that through simply watching the breath. Now, one of the things about any defilements of the mind, whether it's anger or desire or whatever, anger and desire can only sustain themselves if they are fed. Yeah, if you are angry, the only way you can sustain anger is by continuously reminding yourself of that person that you're angry with. Yeah, yeah, they are really bad. Yeah, and you kind of bring them back to mind again and again and again, and the anger sustains itself. But if you take your mind off that object that gives rise to anger, the anger will disappear by itself because it cannot sustain itself anymore. So by staying with the breath, you're undermining all desires and ill will and all defilements. Because desire is the same. Desire is only sustainable because you remember the object of that desire. Yeah? When you remember the object, the desire is sustained. The moment you remove the mind from the object because you're watching the breath or you're watching something else or whatever it is, uh, that desire must gradually fade away. Uh, and this is why meditation leads to, well, this is one way in which meditation leads to the overcoming of defilements. Uh, you will still reach a point where you kind of hit the wall, uh, yeah, where it doesn't go any deeper. Uh, and that may be because of very deep-seated attachments. Uh, in those cases, you may need to contemplate a bit to overcome those attachments. Uh, but as a general principle, just staying with the breath gives, uh, reduces these defilements of the mind. Uh, and you overcome the, uh, the lay life, the ideas of lay life. Yeah, especially, this obviously refers to a monastic, but it can also refer to a lay person who lives uh, very much like a monastic. When you have your little apartment is your own little monastery, yeah, you can kind of let go a little bit in this way. <coughs> okay. Now a mendicant might wish, may I meditate perceiving the repulsive in the unrepulsive. So let them closely focus on the samadhi due to mindfulness of breathing. Yeah. Yeah, seeing the repulsive and the unrepulsive. Sometimes it is useful to see the negative qualities in things around, especially when you're meditating. If you are attracted to something, it can be handy to remember the downside of that thing. Yeah. Uh, Patikula is the Pali word for repulsive here. Yeah. And uh, so you have that ability. Yeah. And this ability grows uh, with your meditation experience. Uh, the Arahant is said to have full, uh, a full ability to um, change the perceptions at will. So an arrowhand can go from repulsive to unrepulsive to both repulsive and repulsive to neither repulsive, non-repulsive, and just just using the mind like that. Uh, yeah, you can go into the shower, ice cold water, and you can turn it into a pleasant experience. Isn't that kind of cool? Huh? Yeah, it's like the repulsive becoming uh, unrepulsive. Huh? 
I've heard of monks doing this. Uh, monks I know very well. Uh, so uh, these things happen. Uh, and it can be very useful if you have problems in your meditation. Uh, uh, or they can meditate, may, may I meditate perceiving the unrepulsive in the repulsive. Uh, so let them closely focus on this immersion due to mindfulness of breathing. Uh, so uh, that can also be useful. Yeah, let's say that you meet a person who is considered repulsive of many people. Uh, you can see the goodness or the compassion or the something positive in that person. Uh, often that can be very useful because otherwise compassion is hard to sustain. Uh, so, um, so, that the, so all of these things are the flexibility of the mind developed through the meditation practice. Uh, or may I meditate uh, perceiving the repulsive in the rep unrepulsive and the repulsive. Uh, so this is getting into a lot of detail. Uh, the idea is that sometimes things are complicated uh, and so you, you, um, you are able to deal with that as well. Uh, a mendicant, my wish, may I meditate perceiving the unrepulsive and the repulsive and the unrepulsive. So again, you practice the mindfulness of breathing here. Yeah. And then a mendicant might wish, may I meditate staying equanimous, mindful and aware, rejecting both the repulsive and the unrepulsive. So let them closely focus on the samadhi or the stillness due to mindfulness of breathing. Yeah. Uh, this is kind of maybe the highest of these developments where the mind is just cool, equanimous, looking on, aware, uh, not being, uh, not neither rejecting nor attracting to anything, uh, whatever there is in the world. You just kind of flow along, uh, easy, equanimous, with a cool mind. Uh, and uh, that now we are kind of approaching very high states of mind. Uh, and uh, we are kind of moving on very closely to the jhanas and the material attainments and all of that. Uh, so I will stop there and uh, we can have a look at these uh, uh, last aspects of the, um, the benefits of mindfulness of breathing tomorrow morning. Uh, and what comes next, just to give you a preview, are the four jhanas and the material attainments uh, and then some very profound things at the very end. Uh, and uh, again, uh, the uh, power of this is that uh, mindfulness of breathing uh, leads to all of these benefits, including all the jhanas uh, and ultimately final awakening itself. That is the power of these things. Uh, all right, uh, everyone, that is all for now. So please keep on enjoying yourself. And uh, as always, we come back again at six o'clock to do some more meditation together. And then we'll finish off with the Q last Q&A this evening at 6.30 here. Yeah.